Welcome to Let's Talk Faith and Justice. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lyndon, pronouns he, him. My name is Boston, my pronouns are he, him. And today we have a guest and we're gonna be talking about harm reduction. So Jake, I invite you to introduce yourself. Hey everybody, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Jake McPhee, pronouns he, him, uh, local counselor and social worker. Um, I have a private practice called Walking Together Counseling, um, and I've been working in the field of mental health and addiction for the last 10 years. Yeah, welcome, Jake. We're so happy to have you. And it's just topic, harm reduction, so front and center and intertwined with so many issues around people without adequate housing, without adequate food, um, real hot button issue in Greater Victoria and, and beyond. Um, Maybe we'll hand it over to you to, to lay out what are maybe some of the basics when we when we think about harm reduction in Greater Victoria and and beyond. You did some work in Toronto as well. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely. I think your point about it being a you know a hot button and contentious issue is is super valid. I think there's a lot of mixed feelings around what harm reduction looks like and and how it has an impact on on the cities that are implementing services within that realm. Um, so for me, you know, I describe harm reduction as, as any practice that's attempting to reduce the negative impacts of behaviors that tend to have some level of risk involved, right? So that could be, um, services in regards to, uh, safer drug supply or using ways to use those drugs in ways that are less harmless, um, also falls on the sort of sexual health category of, you know, reducing reducing the spread of, of STDs um, and bloodborne viruses like HIV. Um, in terms of how that's showing up here in Victoria, I mean, we have certain places, uh, safe injection sites. And I think those have been one of the sort of contentious issues of, you know, um, I think one of the broadest questions that comes up is are these, are these services actually helping people to, to get better or are we, are we enabling? I think that's one of the, the main questions um, that people sort of debate about, and, and is this a, a valid place for our, our funding to be put? Um, I think it's an important response to the secondary pandemic that's been going on over the past five years. I know COVID has been at the forefront, but the reality is that we've lost more people to overdose um, in COVID. And, and in some ways, I think that there's, there's often less light shined on that because of the population that makes up the folks that are, that are overdosing and that we're losing. Um, but in reality, this is this is everybody's issue. It's a wider community issue. Yeah, at, uh, at Church of the Cross, where I serve as a pastor, we had a, a series uh, on harm reduction and related issues recently. So I got to hear from some professionals in the field. And what amazed me is how many resources there are in Greater Victoria, whether it's Island Health and then all the NGOs that support this work with housing and shelters and then those doing the drug testing or safe injection sites and UVic is part of that um, and something that we're is often held up which is this huge crisis I was heartened that there are resources being put into it and some of the the folks the clinicians were saying what you're often seeing say along Pandora Avenue uh, in downtown Victoria are like people with the most chronic issues. You've got mental health plus addictions plus homelessness 
plus lack of family support and or employment, like all those, they're ticking all the boxes in a way that they did rapidly get a bunch of people into shelters, other kinds of housing that are getting various levels of care. And that, that sometimes that story, the success stories aren't getting told. Mm -hmm. I don't know what your takeaway is on kind of public opinion on that, those issues. Yeah, I think, I think you're right that a lot of the success stories are not necessarily being highlighted. And I think even what success looks like um, is, is, a, is an important point as well, right? I mean, harm reduction isn't necessarily saying, you know, we're supporting these people until they can get away from their substance use. For some people, they're up in a space where they're, they're ready for that or they're wanting that. Um, keeping people alive is a minimum minimum level of success in this work. Getting people housed and keeping them housed is certainly a level of success. Um, and I think in terms of a street like Pandora, we have to remember that these these people are autonomous beings, right? So not everybody actually wants to be inside a shelter where they have you know certain structures or rules or um, there are certain issues like like violence, like stealing, like like bed bugs and other sort of health contaminant things. Um, and like you said, I mean, the people that are typically in those more extreme sort of scenarios are people that have all of these layered issues. Um, and I haven't met a single person, you know, in the sort of homeless addiction populated community, either here in Victoria or, or in Toronto that didn't have some serious trauma, right? Um, it's hard to know sometimes where did things start, right? Was somebody... Did somebody become homeless and then they started using substances to sort of cope with that with that homelessness and that led to a mental health issue or did they have you know psychosis and that led to homeless and then that led to drug use like there's there's different paths by which people kind of come into these similar situations but um i think really at the the root of it all what i would like to see is is more compassion for the reasoning behind it and i think a lot of the time these people are sort of just viewed as as a social problem um something they kind of try to try to put away or deal with simply from the perspective of, of convenience for the reputation of our city, right? And there can be a dehumanizing aspect of that. Yeah, that is, it's, um, I find that something like uh, that I struggled with before, absolutely that sort of, because we get so, used to that being the opinion right like oh like you don't know, like look you know sort of pretend like you don't see it or sort of yeah like it's um yeah these like 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 you said like the dehumanization um i actually so i worked at our place society a couple of years ago i was uh, a summer in a summer position there um i think my title was spiritual care worker um and so and that honestly, that was one of the most striking, like realizing what sorts of sort of internal sort of discrimination that I had mm. towards people struggling with homelessness. Because, yeah, like, I, I mean, I would go past Pandora and think like, oh, like, you know, I'd, I wouldn't want to go. I wouldn't want to stop at the bus stop on Pandora or I wouldn't want to like walk down there by myself and then working there for a whole summer and just like, yeah, seeing you know, you know, having a, an opportunity to, because my basically my whole job as a spiritual care worker was to like, just talk to people, 
to listen to their problems to and and I mean not necessarily listen to their problems even just like you know if someone wants to play a card game or something like go play a card game with them and just you know again make them feel like like they're you know like they're not a problem mm-hmm. and that was something that I noticed in myself right away was like, wow, like I've been really a garbage human being when it comes to this kind of stuff. And like, I have the internal, this internal view that now I see all the time in people after working at our place where I think, yeah, these are, these are people that have a multitude of problems and are not all like these I don't know. You hear it in Victoria all the time. Like the old rich white people here are always like, Oh, like, that they're dangerous you don't want to go and it's like no no <laughs> like a lot of the, they are just people that if you like leave them alone they're gonna leave you alone and like you know what I mean like they're not like all these like scheming like yeah we're gonna hurt people or we're gonna rob them which is what you hear all the time in Victoria and um anyways that's a little bit of a rant but that was kind of one of my the biggest things that I noticed working right on Pandora for like a whole summer was like wow yeah I have these internal thoughts and issues and now it's really easy to see it in other people when I talk to people and they say stuff like yeah why is why is Pandora so full of tents like don't isn't there supports and stuff and like you're saying like I saw that a lot as well like not everyone wants to go and stay in a place like you said where you know, they're getting told, okay, lights off at 8 p.m. or something, or like, you're not allowed to have certain belongings in here, or whatever, like, yeah, it's like, they're like, no, I'm, I'm gonna go and live on my own where I can make my own rules, right? Yeah, living on your own terms, and a lot of shelters are, are gendered, right? So if folks are in a partnership with somebody of the opposite sex, they often can't stay with their partner, often they're not allowed to bring their pets, so a lot of different different reasons why folks might decide to not take on a spot in a shelter. And the other reality is just capacity, right? Like all of the shelters in Victoria are, are filled to, compa- to capacity most nights. So we don't actually have the infrastructure to support everybody. Um, yeah, I like your I like your point around sort of violence and this, this I think over-exaggeration of sort of the risk of a lot of these folks. I mean, again, in my you know 10 plus years of working in the community, maybe once or twice, I think I was actually in a, in a situation where, where violence may have been on the table. Um, I also appreciate that being in, in some of those spaces as a woman might feel a bit different um, or somebody is more part of a visible minority group. But I think most of these people are just people that have been through some really difficult times and they're just trying to get by. Um, and some of the most honest, real conversations I've had have been with some of those some of those folks because this sort of social mask of you know, I need to pretend that I've got it all together or, or, you know, putting on these layers of facade of what I want you to think, think I am. It's just all kind of tore down, you know, and they're just able to just be like, yeah, this is, this is who I am and this is where I'm at. Um, and that vulnerability is really, really admirable. Um, and I think just being able to see each person as an individual, right? So having, having that conversation with one person where you can say like, oh, like this is Dave and Dave is a person, this is Dave's story as opposed to sort of this, this stigma language, these broader pieces, right? And, and, and the words that we, the words that we use, right? I mean, you know, if, if someone's to say like, oh, just a bunch of crackheads on Pandora, it's like, we're really, really just minimizing people to their, to their substance use. And 
I think I think a lot of that you know attitude starts with this idea that people are just lazy, right? You know, get yourself together, get a job, um, not realizing all the all the barriers in place to to make that happen. A lot of people are trying or have tried, but maybe they didn't finish high school because there was barriers in place. You know, they're on they're on the streets now. They don't have clothes to go to an interview. They don't have an address to um, put on a resume, a place to print a resume, perhaps, or they just really lack the the mental stability to to carry on a job and to, and to have that sort of scheduled lifestyle, right? So, um, just so many complicated layers to be to be taken into into perspective, and I think having compassion at the forefront um, provides a much better result than just wanting to sort of dismiss people as as lazy. I wonder when we think about like how so much of this is winning over public opinion in order to keep attracting the resources needed for these services to flourish. Um, if there's ways to reclaim that conversation around public safety, right? That public safety really looks like harm reduction and getting resources so that if we raise all the boats, starting with the most marginalized people that is going to translate into increased safety and well-being for people who already have more moderate levels of comfort. Like that's the irony is people who get, get on board with this tough on crime approach and stuff is they often just exacerbate problems. If all you're doing is hurting people and uh, you know putting resources into punishing them in different ways actually makes things worse. Um, and you get people more riled up and more desperate, uh, as opposed to like offering solutions that, yeah, they need to be, there's a spectrum of that, they're long-term, there's no quick fixes for these things. But the irony is the populist voices that say we need to get tough on crime, they never really do, right? It's just a pandering to voters. So I wonder if there's ways for us to get ahead of that, because we're always caught flat-footed if we're like, no, we're, we're not going to get tough on crime, or, you know, like, we're just playing defense to these made-up uh, kind of populist stories. If, if we could get ahead of that and say, no, we're the ones who are, you know, who really care about public safety because we care about the safety of all our neighbors. Mm. Um, I mean, that's that's more on the communications level of it, but that is also seems so crucial so that regardless of who's in power that these crucial programs aren't uh, losing funding as a result of, of someone spinning a tail in an untrue way. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this concept of, of tough on crime, like I've, I uh, was working casually for a while and as, a, as an addictions counselor at Wilkinson Jail and probably 90% of the people in there are just in and out every three to 12 months with some kind of theft under 5,000 charge, you know, which is just, just them trying to make things, make ends meet, right? Trying to get their, get their, get food, get, get the drugs that they need to not kind of go into um, a really bad, bad state in terms of their health, but it's just a revolving door because there isn't a whole lot of actual assistance there for change. So I really don't think putting people in jail is a solution for dealing with people that are all automatically, you know, traumatized individuals. 
Um, and if we're looking at it from a taxpayer's perspective, I mean, keeping people in jail is very expensive. I'd much rather see that money put towards community services that's actually going to hope, hopefully get people to a better place. And from a community perspective, I think harm reduction services are are hopefully increasing community safety in terms of things like needles on playgrounds, right? Valid. I totally get it. I've got a toddler. I don't want to go to a park and find a used needle, you know, sticking out of the out of the sandbox either. Um, but I think the more we have safe injection sites and places where people can do needle exchanges and have, you know, um, boxes in the community where people can drop off their, their used needles and things like that, the less likely that those concerns are actually going to become a reality. So I don't know that crime is necessarily going to be something that can be fixed in and of itself. I mean, a lot of the crime that I see in relation to drug use is is petty theft, right? People are stealing things in order to make ends meet. And so if we're just addressing that, we're really not getting to the core of the issue, which is why these people are using in the first place um, and what supports they maybe don't have in place to get them into a place where they could consider making some changes around that. Even just getting into residential treatment, like it's people don't just get to snap their fingers and go to treatment, right? I've been with plenty of people who are in a, a mental space where they're ready to go. And then by the time they might be able to get a bed three months later or whatever, their life is in a completely different situation and they're no longer able or willing to go. So there's a lot of, a lot of barriers in place that people outside of the sort of service might not understand. What are, what are some of the nuts and bolts of harm reduction for people? So you talked about safe injection sites. I know there's, um, they're testing what are the substances in a drug, if it's safe. So safe supply is an issue around that. Um, like again, like Boston, you did an internship at our place. Sometimes as clergy, we get invited into some of these spaces to help tell the story. Um, but for folks who haven't been inside or are not associated, um, yeah, how do you, how do we de demystify some of this? What are some basic things that are happening, I guess, in these spaces? Yeah, um, I mean, I think again, like the sort of two main main goal of being protecting the individual and then protecting the community beyond that, right? Um, so at the individual level, yeah, doing drug testing to hopefully be avoiding overdoses to begin with. We are starting to do more safe supply, which I think has been a pretty contentious issue. Um, a lot of people are, are on opiate replacement therapy, right? So a medication that essentially is preventing them from um, going into overdose and is reducing craving um, so that hopefully they're not needing to use street-based opiates, which, which come at a much, much higher risk. Um, in terms of demystifying, I think a lot of that just goes back again to humanizing the experience for me. Um, in terms of this, this concept of enabling, right? So I think part of harm reduction is this idea that people are not going to stop on a, on a, on a broad scale using drugs or, or engaging in other activities that are risky, right? It's the, it's the sort of the the condom, the condom bowl in the in the high school 
in the high school office, right? It's like, we know that teenagers are going to have sex. What can we do to, to help them to, to do it more safely? So I don't think removing any of those harm reductions is going gonna, is gonna to change the situation at all. Like people are going to continue to engage in these behaviors. We've seen how high the overdose rate is, and yet people continue to use. There's plenty of people on Pandora Street right now that have had a series of overdoses that have potentially been like medically declared dead at certain points in time. And that addiction and that pull is so strong that they continue to go back to it. So I don't think there's any barrier that could be put in place that's going to change the fact that these behaviors are going to continue. Thinking about safe supply, I remember at one of these talks we had at the church that there was a longstanding detective with Vic PD who spoke, very non-assuming person, didn't come in uniform, smaller stature, um, uh, kind of surprising, uh, very candid demeanor and said uh, that he had spent 10 years trying to reduce drug supply in BC and that it had been totally uh, not worked. Because first, these um, a lot of the, uh, the street drugs were coming from out of country, and then some of the cheaper stuff was being manufactured in BC all over the place. And no matter how many resources they threw at it, there would just be, you know, you didn't need like a pristine laboratory <laughs> to make some of this stuff and pretty cheap ingredients. And so he had totally pivoted away from trying to eradicate the sources because there are just too many. You just spend millions of dollars chasing after uh, people who will always be attracted to making a buck. And it's too, they said it was just an inexhaustible supply. And so he really was pivoting to arguing for the things you're talking about with harm reduction and looking at the root causes and not necessarily what I expected to hear from someone with, with Vic PD and had said 10 years of trying to police that at its source didn't produce nothing. He said he felt it was useless. So that was surprising to me to hear someone speak so candidly and was really an advocate for a, a more kind of broad base approach. Um, and say, yeah, we need to reduce, yeah, the need for this by giving people housing and addictions treatment and safe supply uh, could, can be part of that. Um, but I know that's a mm -hmm. expensive upfront investment, mostly because that is being made in laboratories. So that stuff is expensive. But again, it's more about the long-term benefits of paying less for you say jails or other facilities that are very expensive to run. So yeah, it costs a lot, but maybe less than the alternative. Yeah, I think I mean I think we've seen some successful models of that, right? Like certain um, certain countries like Norway and, and Sweden um, have had models that are are far more geared towards a rehabilitative than a punitive mindset. They've had a lot of success with that, right? Offering people treatment and housing and again, really getting to the root causes as opposed to just, you know, punishing people that are already traumatized and are just gonna keep going through that that same loop and cycle. Um 
I would love to see it be easier for people to access treatment um, and at a in a quicker way. And I would say the same for detox. I mean, I, I find that there is often a window of opportunity that can be missed with folks because I think that they're struggling with that internal addictive voice, right? There might be a part of themselves that is wanting to make change and willing to make change, but probably are also terrified of, of change and, and what that's really going to look like. And if we can't catch them in that opportunity where they're motivated and willing, then a lot of the time we kind of lose them again. So... I wish I wish that that was something that we could capitalize on a bit better. And then and then housing is still a major issue. I mean, I, I used to work in Victoria with the um, community community addictions outreach teams, and a lot of these clients are are the folks that we're kind of talking about. Like all of them are, uh, we're able to get them into social housing often, but they were pri like prior homeless um, and and co concurrent mental health and substance use issues. And even those people, sort of the uh, the most challenge you could say, it's hard to find them housing, right? And so people, there's plenty of those people that we still don't have housing for. And then there's people that are slightly less off than that, but still really struggling. There's just not enough spaces for those people to be in. Yeah, it really is. I mean, just to like, again, talk about like our place, like I, uh, there were, um, yeah, there were several people that I knew that like were kind of the same thing, like were ready in a mindset that they were ready to seek help. And it just took so, so long for them to get access get a bed anywhere that they ended up they did end up using again and a couple of them ended up actually passing away that mm -hmm. summer like from overdoses and stuff like that because yeah it's and and it's even when you have a bed I've heard that sometimes it's kind of you can kind of be it's like just it's so so small capacity and there's so much need for it I've I heard a lot of stories of people basically being sort of like just like shoot right through the process, like kind of just like, okay, hey, yeah, like let's move on, let's move on, let's move on. And so it's all well and good to have a bed and to have support while you're, you know, coming down off of um, going through, um, what's it called? I can't remember the term right now for withdrawal? some reason. Withdrawal, yeah, exactly. That's all well and good. But then when you are kind of just like thrown out onto the side of the road with no, after support as well then the exact same thing ends up happening because you go back into you know your all of your friends or all the people that you know at that point are probably using and so you go to your friends for support and then eventually they you end up using again because you're surrounded by people and that's the only place that you can go and it's just so yeah it's so so disappointing absolutely yeah i do think there's quite often a a dropped ball between detox and treatment as well, you know, where people go into detox for two weeks and they, they get clean and then there isn't a treatment bed available for them for another month and they're back out on the streets. And it's like, what, what, what chances are we really giving them to not relapse with the amount of temptation um, that's present? And I mean, for a lot of, a lot of people have also described substance use as being part of their survival strategy for homelessness. Right. So okay, maybe I'm a woman who's on the streets and I don't feel comfortable actually sleeping at 
sleeping at night anywhere, you know? So maybe I'm using methamphetamine to stay up all night so I can sleep during the day, or it's cold, so I'm using alcohol as a comfort to cope with that. Um, so just some practical ways in which kind of substances are discussed as being used to to cope with some of the harsh realities of of homelessness. And then even if people, like you said, Boston do get into treatment, if they come back out and they don't have any housing or any other supports, I mean, it's hard enough to not relapse a lot of the times when you do have those supports. And so, you know, it's, it's pulling somebody out of the pond to dry them off, to toss them back into the pond. <laughs> um, just the, the follow through in terms of the long-term goals and support are, are often not in place. Jake, something you mentioned uh, before we started recording today was that often queer people are overrepresented in people needing harm reduction and including here in Greater Victoria. I'm wondering if you could speak to some of the reasons why that is the case. Absolutely. So, I mean, again, we've kind of talked about the overlapped relationship between homelessness and substance use. Um, a lot of queer people are disowned by their families or in an environment that's no longer safe for them to um, stay in. And so within the homeless youth population, there's no representation of queer people. And a lot of people end up staying in that system because there isn't support and they kind of get stuck, get stuck in a cycle that can be really difficult to get out of. Um, I mean, similarly, in terms of substance use, there's an overrepresentation of queer people using substances to cope with certain challenges that they might face that that straight cisgender people may not, right? So a lack of support from community and family, um, internalized homophobia and transphobia, lack of social supports, um, employment, certainly a factor too, right? Um, I would say, in particular, I see an overrepresentation of, of trans women um, in the in the street and trench community. And I think I think part of that is a, a lack of an ability to find employment sometimes. And 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 as as a result of that, they're often overrepresented in the in the uh, sex worker community as well, right? That that's a way that they're able to support themselves, um, which poses another other additional potential harms um, without a lack of support there. So yeah, I think it's a lot of I think it's a lot of the um, the lack of familial familial and social support that people kind of end up being put out on the street and then that can often cycle into, you know, using drugs to cope with that emotional pain or engaging in, you know, drug dealing or sex work to to kind of make ends meet. And I think a lot of the time once people are wrapped up in wrapped up in that, it's really hard to pull yourself away. And we we hear about Victoria as being a place uh, some queer people feel safer compared to other places in Canada. At the same time, if a lot of these folks don't have stability in their lives and the ways that you just described, that makes it hard for uh, folks to do uh, kind of community support. If people don't have extra money to help pay someone's rent or you know, help with a car repair, whatever it is to help stretch something before things getting worse, um, that that can be really, really hard. I think that's something I've learned a bit. Uh, Boston and I are part of Inclusive Christians at UVic and just recognizing that queer students 
um, seem to have more mental health struggles on on average, and we're not necessarily talking about the extreme cases that of folks who end up on the street. Although we know that the line there can be quite thin, mm-hmm. right? There can be a veneer that things are okay, or people are from a middle class home, or whatever. And yeah, if the support is cut off from family or whatever it might be, that situation can change too. So that's brought to mind, like hearing students sleeping in vehicles or camping or whatever it is because rent is too expensive or you can't find a place to live. Um, That's certainly more on the the foreground these days. Absolutely, I mean, affordability of housing is just becoming an increasing issue here. Um, you know, there's plenty of people that, that are working that have jobs that are, that are still homeless or, or precariously housed living in, living in their car or, or sort of couch surfing with friends. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks that can't find work are on, you know, disability or social assistance. And that is barely enough for folks to pay their rent. If it is enough for that, and then there's really very little, if anything left over for groceries and, and transportation and other things that folks need to just get by so this city is becoming increasingly challenging for people to afford and we also have an overrepresented homeless population here because of the warm weather that we have right this is one of the one of the best places in canada arguably to be to be homeless i would say from a perspective of also just the practicality of, of the weather right people people from a lot of other provinces come here um, to get by. Yeah, and for that, it's we should be receiving more resources from like federal and provincial government. I don't know what degree that is already the case. That in Victoria and Vancouver for sure over overrepresented in, in that for those reasons you described. Yeah, I definitely think that more more money for services could be utilized, absolutely. And I think a lot of the people doing the most intensive frontline work are, are quite often undervalued and underpaid as well. Um, I mean, what somebody can make in, you know, private practice working with the middle class is significantly higher than somebody working, you know, at Rock Bay Landing, you know, dealing with people that are in, in the most challenging of situations, right? Um, so sometimes even people working within the sector are struggling financially to get by, which feels like a bit of an irony as well. Um, just looking at the time here, we've kind of, we've. We're just about, we're just about at time. Um, and so I was wondering if like Jake or Lyndon, if there's anything else you really wanted to make sure to touch on before we, we wrap up. I, I was gonna ask Jake if there were, since um, we have some faith perspective on the podcast and in the work we do, if there are some takeaways you might offer ways that maybe we could lower the bar for people to be part of Christian communities or for 
religious communities to meet uh, people who are struggling where they're at in terms of harm reduction instead of just waiting for people to come through our doors. Um, I mean, there's concrete ways that you can go through the training and volunteer at these various agencies they describe. Um, are there things just as a community generally that we could be uh, more welcoming in a genuine way? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, like faith organizations historically have been at the forefront of providing services for people who who are homeless. Um, this kind of makes me think of like the hierarchy of needs, right? So for somebody who is just trying to get through the day without, you know, overdosing or going into withdrawal and that's living in a tent and just trying to get themselves fed and clothed. For them, a relationship with God is probably not a priority at a, at, at a point where they're just trying to meet their basic needs, right? And I think one of the challenging things that I see sometimes with, with sort of missions work towards that population is almost this sense of you just need a relationship with Jesus and everything else is sort of secondary and it's all going to pan out, right? And I could see myself being in, in their shoes and feeling like, do you not see the reality of the situation that I'm dealing with here? Like, that just feels a little quasi doc the day-to-day -day challenges that I'm facing. So I do, I do like the idea of providing practical supports, right? Like, um, whether that's, you know, volunteering at, at our place or, you know, if, uh, um, somewhere that's giving up food hampers or some sort of other service and really trying to build a relationship. I think without a relationship, words are kind of, words are kind of empty, you know? Um, and I think you're probably going to have your best bet forming a relationship with an individual person and then perhaps inviting them, inviting them out to church or, or some kind of other community setting with that relationship. I don't know that without that trust, especially given that a lot of these people are traumatized and, and, and tokenized that you're going to get get particularly far um, without that rapport already in place. And I mean, I think yeah. Jesus talked a lot about meeting people's basic needs, right? Like, I was hungry and you fed me. I was I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. So um, just a reminder that some of those practical pieces are as important, I think, as, as a faith relationship. Yeah, it was Matthew 25 basics there. Um, that makes sense. Something I've been wondering about is us opening like the hall we have at the church uh, in partnership to the Shelburne Community Kitchen that have rent space in our building. Uh, it's a separate entity, but we work together in different ways. And we've talked about after they finish their renovation for their commercial kitchen, whether we could open the hall just to serve coffee and tea, use the Wi-Fi if they have the device, have magazines available and just have a space to chill, just something the kitchen used to do in their old space, but they haven't had room for that. Um, so something we could staff, no strings attached, not do you know Jesus kind of, you know, manipulative type conversation. And as you say, just trust building in that sense, because other than the public library, there's not many places you can go for where you don't have to spend money. So, yeah. All right. I'll keep that, keep that in the back of my mind for anyone listening who's also looking to build relationship or do some outreach. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. 
And uh, anything, anything, any last words, Jake? Anything else? I think I, I think I'll just leave it with um, reminding ourselves that I think you know any of us are or could have been just a few steps away from being in the police as some of the. Oh, sorry, you cut out the last couple words that are cut out. I was just saying it's 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 easy, you know, sometimes to look at some of these people for, through a lens of judgment, but the reality is, a sim like a simple change in circumstances for us, or a few different decisions, and we we may very well have been in in a similar situation, and I think people are able to judge from this this far away point of you know that that never could have been me or never could be, um, and just being able to see these people as as individuals. And, and having having that humanity and that that compassion. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, we have uh, some thank yous we say at the end of every episode. So thank you to um, Uvic Multifaith. Thank you to CFUV, who's we're not we're all at home today. We're not actually in the studio today, but um, we are usually there. So thank you to CFUV for letting us use the studio. Um, Thank you to the BC Synod for supporting the work of the podcast. Thank you to Lutheran Church of the Cross. And thank you, Jake, so much for taking time out of your day and, and chatting with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Yeah, do you have uh, any socials or a, the website for your, your practice you want to let people know about? Sure. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Walking Together Counseling or on Instagram. Uh, same thing at Walking Together Counseling. Fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Goodbye.